0: I tell you what, the only way I got through this was I would pick out a boulder about maybe 50 yards in front of me and I would tell myself, okay, Karen, <laughs> all you have to do is get to that next boulder and you can rest and maybe you can sit down even and you can drink some water. That's all you have to do. Just get to the next boulder.
1: So you were you were talking to yourself? <laughs> did you During this conversation, did you ever think what? what happened after you got to that boulder
0: no i blocked it all out of my mind that's that's, the only way i could get through it
1: tricking yourself yes i completely
0: fooled myself uh, i think
1: when when you talk to yourself you should probably ask more follow-up questions (laughs) (laughs) probe a little bit more
0: This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith.
1: And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. On today's episode, we're talking about our climb to the top of Mount St. Helens in Washington State.
0: While Mount St. Helens is a very popular hiking destination, it's much more famous for the eruption that occurred there in 1980, the most catastrophic and deadly volcanic event ever experienced in the United States. We'll discuss some details about what happened that day over 40 years ago.
1: So what was it like to climb to the rim of the crater and look down into this volcano where the eruption took place? We'll tell you all about it coming up next.
0: We're going to start this episode out with a mailbag question, even though this isn't our monthly mailbag episode, but it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So a month or two ago, a listener named Faith sent us a mailbag question asking us what our most difficult day hike has been.
1: And I think if she would have sent that a year ago, we would probably had to think about it and had probably several hikes that we could think of, but... Now, there's no doubt which was the hardest hike we've ever done, because last September, we hiked up to the rim of Mount St. Helens, and... That was uh, much more difficult than any other hike I think we've ever done.
0: Hands down, more difficult. Uh, And we can can both agree on that. There's no debate on that one. Now, it's interesting that people refer to this particular hike as a climb. They call it climbing Mount St. Helens. So we just want to say off the bat that this is a non-technical hike. There are no ropes involved. There is no other gear needed. But if you hear us refer to it, you know, you have to get a climb permit, et cetera. I will say, though, that after doing it, I can kind of see why they refer to it as a climb. It felt
1: felt like a climb. It it felt like a climb while we were doing it, and it felt like a climb for the few days afterwards.
0: Actually, for me, it felt more like a crawl. Because
1: it was. Yeah,
0: I'd call it a crawl, not a climb, not a hike. So what are we talking about today, Matt?
1: It is the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument. Now, this is a a forest service site. It's in the southwestern uh, part of Washington state.
0: Yes, it's actually closer, a lot closer to Portland than it is to Seattle. And if you're not familiar with uh, the Pacific Northwest, Mount St. Helens is part of the Cascade Range, which... Is a group of 13 volcanoes that run about 800 miles all the way from British Columbia in the north down through Washington, down through Oregon, all the way to Northern California.
1: And 11 of those 13 volcanoes in the Cascade Range, they've erupted at least once in the past 4,000 years. And seven of them have erupted just in the last 200 years. That's a lot. (laughs) And in geological time, that's uh, a nanosecond. So they're very active. Matter of fact, the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, they did a volcanic threat assessment back in 2018, and they designated nine volcanoes in Washington and Oregon as either high or very high threat rating. Uh, The very high threat rated volcanoes were Crater Lake, Glacier Peak, Mount Baker, Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, Newberry, and Three Sisters. And then uh, Mount Adams was on that list as a high threat rating. So these volcanoes are still active.
0: Yeah, and it's a little intimidating to hear that because... In the summers, we are hiking in most of those areas all the time. Right. That's, that's like our backyard.
1: <laughs> yeah, let, and let's hope they just don't blow when we're anywhere close to them or, for that matter, anyone else. But there are a lot of – there are thousands of people that live close to these volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest. So,
0: Oh, yeah, especially Mount Rainier, right on the edge of, of the Seattle metropolitan area. So we're going to be talking about our hike up to the rim of Mount St. Helens. But before we get into that, we can't really describe what it was like until we first talk about the eruption of Mount St. Helens, which happened back in 1980, I think, before a lot of you were born. Now, we didn't live in the Pacific Northwest back then. We were, we were what? Just like little toddler kids back in (laughs) Kansas. In
1: 1980? Yeah, I was... (laughs) I was a toddler back in 1980, although we got married in 1982, which is weird, but (laughs) we did. We were were married young. No, I I do remember Mount St. Helens blowing.
0: Yeah, we were in Lawrence at the University of Kansas at the time, but I do remember seeing those incredible images that were on TV of the eruption and the aftermath. This happened on May 18th, 1980. 41 years ago. And one thing when we were doing the research, one thing we found out that I didn't realize ahead of time is that the mountain actually came to life about two months prior to the eruption. So on March 16th, the first sign of activity at Mount St. Helens occurred, and that was as a series of small earthquakes. And then by March 27th, after hundreds of additional earthquakes, the volcano produced its first eruption in over 100 years. I guess steam explosions blasted a 200-foot-wide crater through the volcano summit ice cap. And it covered the southeast sector with dark ash.
1: But that wasn't the big one.
0: It wasn't. The next week, the crater had grown to about 1,300 feet in diameter, and two giant crack systems crossed the entire summit area.
1: Well, that should be a warning to people.
0: Yes, it was clear that something was going on, and I guess eruptions occurred on average from about one per hour in March to about one per day by April 22nd, and then it was quiet for a while, and then they resumed on May 7th, and they continued until May 17th. Uh, But what is interesting, what else is happening by then, after more than 10,000 earthquakes, on the north flank, there has become this huge bulge in the mountain. I guess it stuck out about 450 feet. That's an
1: incredible bulge bulge, 450 feet. I know what it's like to hike up 450 feet. That's amazing that something like that could form so quickly.
0: I know. And they were watching it grow about six and a half feet per day. That's just wild to think about. What that meant was, because I had to look this up since we don't know much about volcanoes. This was strong evidence that molten rock, magma had risen into the volcano and it was creating that kind of bulge.
1: And what's unusual is the day before the eruption, there wasn't a lot of activity. It was a very calm day, but then on May 18th, which happened to be a Sunday, Mm -hmm. at 8.32 a.m., a a 5.0 magnitude earthquake struck below the, the north face, and that triggered the largest landslide in recorded history. And... And it was a lateral blast, and it could be heard, I guess, hundreds of miles away. It took off 1,300 feet of the top of the volcano, which, again, is just incredible. Sending shock waves and the pyroclastic flow torrenting down uh, the valley. It flattened the forest. It melted snow and ice. Created massive mud flows. So this landslide debris surged down the mountain at over 100 miles an hour the avalanche it created, it flooded Spirit Lake, and then it roared down the Tootle River Valley. That landslide went for 13 miles, and it buried that river to an average of 150 feet in depth with debris. So really a powerful, massive volcanic explosion.
0: It's just unbelievable. Even when you can see video of it on the internet and you can see photos, I can't even comprehend what that could have been like. Like you said, it happened on a Sunday morning at 8.30 a.m., so a lot of people weren't up and out yet, thank goodness. Most likely the first person to witness this eruption on that Sunday morning was 30-year-old David Johnston, who was a member of the U.S. Geological Survey monitoring team, and he was the scientist in charge of volcanic gas studies. So David had camped overnight on the Coldwater Ridge 2 observation post, which was about six miles north of the mountain, and on that Sunday morning when the sun came up at about 5.30 a.m., David got up and from his camper, he checked the growing bulge of Mount St. Helens with his geodetic equipment and he he found that the growth had slowed. Uh, this bulge was only about two feet bigger than the day earlier instead of the typical six feet that it had been growing. At 6.53 a.m., he radioed in this measurement to the USGS office in Vancouver, Washington. So on this beautiful Sunday morning, everything was quiet until suddenly, at 8.32 a.m., this 5.0 magnitude earthquake triggered the landslide on the mountain's north face. And as you said, Matt, the mountain began spewing steam and gas, and seconds later, it erupted from the north side. Um, Then a dense mass of super hot ash, lava and gas came barreling towards David at supersonic speeds. And this, of course, was soon joined by those violent mud flows that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, very, very unfortunate for David.
0: He had less than a minute to react. He grabbed his radio and he yelled, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. And seconds later, his signal went silent.
1: And then everything right there where David was, I mean, the camp where he was and where he watched the eruption, it was just obliterated, and his body was never found.
0: Such a tragedy.
1: And now that observation post is now a site of the Johnston Riggs Observatory. So they built it in honor of his life and his work.
0: That's right. And now it's the uh, main visitor center for Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument.
1: And unfortunately, in addition to David, 56 other people were presumed dead. So a total of 57 people lost their lives due to this um, eruption.
0: You know, with as much warning as geologists had that the mountain would erupt, about two months warning, you might wonder why so many people died. Basically, everyone underestimated the strength of the eruption and how far the devastation would spread.
1: You know, at the time, most of the land around the volcano was owned by logging companies who were at odds with the geologist about how big the danger zone should be. So the danger zone was the area that was off limits to everyone. At its closest, the danger zone was only three miles away from the eventual eruption.
0: And in hindsight, obviously, the danger zone was way too small. Everything within eight miles of the blast was wiped out instantly. Of the 57 people who were killed, only three were in the danger zone. The other 54 were actually quite distant. In fact, one person who was killed was 13 miles away.
1: Wow, that's something. I know. You know, the logging companies and their employees were incredibly lucky that the eruption occurred on a Sunday because, you know, many of the loggers working in the area would have been killed.
0: So incredibly fortunate.
1: Also, besides the loss of human life, The debris from the avalanche and the mud flows and the flood caused just extensive damage to the land and and, uh, the buildings around the area.
0: That's right. I wrote down some of the statistics. It is pretty um, horrific All of the buildings and man-made structures in the vicinity of Spirit Lake, which was four miles away, were completely buried. More than 200 houses and cabins were destroyed, and many more were damaged in Skamania and Cowlitz counties, leaving hundreds and hundreds of people homeless. Many tens of thousands of acres of prime forest, as well as recreational sites, bridges, roads, and trails were destroyed or heavily damaged." More than 185 miles of highways and roads and 15 miles of railways were destroyed or extensively damaged. Wildlife in the Mount St. Helens area also suffered heavily. The Washington State Department of Game estimated that nearly 7,000 big game animals, those would be deer, elk, and bear, perished in the area most affected by the eruption, as well as all birds and most small mammals. Now, the Washington Department of Fisheries estimated that 12 million Chinook and Coho salmon fingerlings were killed when hatcheries were destroyed. Those might have developed into about 360,000 adult salmon. And one more note, the ash cloud. When Mount St. Helens erupted, ash plumes shot 15 miles into the sky and during the nine hours of this vigorous eruptive activity, about 540 million tons of ash fell over an area of more than 22,000 square miles. Within 24 hours, it had spread to the central United States. And within two weeks, this ash from the eruption was all over the globe.
1: Yeah, what it did, uh, they estimated the cost back then mm-hmm. uh, was about billion? That's right. uh, And that would be low by today's standards.
0: That's true. And two years after the eruption, Congress created the 110,000-acre Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument. And the reason they did this was because they wanted to protect the area from future logging, although, as we have said, I think all of the trees in that entire area had already come down. But they wanted to protect the area so they could study how and when nature started rejuvenating itself. When when would plants start to grow? When would animals come back? So that is why this um, monument was created in the first place.
1: Yeah, and for, gosh, uh, I think it's about seven years after the eruption, they just prohibited any kind of recreational climbing or hiking in, in this area, Uh, But then in May 1987, they reopened the southern routes.
0: That's right. And now access to the crater was forbidden back then, and it is forbidden now. Um, You cannot go into the crater. But let's talk about some of the specifics of climbing up to the rim of Mount St. Helens.
1: Okay, let's do that.
0: You know, I'm surprised. I'm always surprised to know and to see that people do this hike year-round because it gets a tremendous amount of snow in the winter.
1: Well, having gone up, it makes a little bit more sense because when it's covered in deep snow, people can essentially make their own route up there. Mm -hmm. They they don't have to follow necessarily the the landscape, which is boulder-strewn for a lot of areas although I'm not sure I'd want to do it in the snow. I guess I'd be a little little afraid of the avalanches.
0: Obviously, you have to do it either on snowshoes or with your microspikes on. And then I think people glissade down. And if you're not yep. familiar with that term, basically, it's what sliding down on your butt. Well, yeah, yeah <laughs> just,
1: you're, you're sliding down. Some, some people take uh, mm-hmm. snow shovels and they sit on the snow shovel and kind of use the handle as a rudder or they'll just bring a disc Uh Uh, if you try to do this even in the shortest little hill Think ahead of time how you're going to slow yourself down.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Because you could pick up speed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I you, think
0: you definitely need an ice axe, too. An
1: ice axe. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people put their feet yeah. out in front of them and dig their heels in. But yeah, you okay. gotta you got to have a way to slow yourself down.
0: That's right. But the most popular climbing season for Mount St. Helens is late spring through early fall. And for that particular route, most climbers use the Monitor Ridge route, which starts at the climber's bivouac. Now, you do need a permit. You need a permit year round. And the ones in the summer are difficult to get.
1: Why are they difficult to get?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone wants to do it and they limit it. So if you want to climb between April 1st and October 31st, you purchase your tickets um, online in advance at recreation.gov. And they limit those permits to 110 people per day. So there is a mad scramble when they go up for grabs. I think they sell out within minutes.
1: Yeah, we were lucky to get permits.
0: We were. Now, in the wintertime, there's not as much demand. So if you want to climb it from November 1st through March 31st, the permits are free and they're self-issued at the Marble Mount Snow Park. And this is a different route. You go up via the Worm Flows route. Um, And like we said, you're probably on snowshoes or microspikes. What are the statistics of this hike, Matt.
1: So the route we did, we hiked this in early September, uh, the summer route. It gained 4,500 feet in five miles. It it went up to the rim of the crater, which is about 8,400 feet elevation. The Forest Service website describes the hike as a strenuous, non-technical climb that's suitable for people in good condition who are comfortable scrambling on steep, rugged terrain. You know, most climbers, they say complete it in about seven to 12 hours.
0: I'd say that's fairly accurate, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. (laughs) We had tried for several years prior to our actual summit, we got a permit the first time in May of 2018 and the day we were supposed to go, there was a blizzard. Yep. So, <laughs> so we canceled. So we decided against that. <laughs> That's right. And the second time we got a permit, the following year, it was for July of 2019. And there was a major thunderstorm, like thunder and lightning. So again... We yeah. bailed. Yeah. Yeah,
1: we, we're not going to get struck by lightning climbing up Mount St. Helens. That's
0: right. But as they say, the third time is a charm. And um, we did it with our friends John and Lolly. And Lolly – Every time we've tried to do it throughout these years, she has been the one who has gotten online to get our permits. And she has some kind of magic because every single time within 60 seconds, she has a permit for us. So So, full full credit to Lolly. (laughs) Lolly
1: was the good luck on on getting those permits. Mm -hmm. The trailhead from our house is several hours away. And we knew that the hike would take all day. So rather than, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and, and driving to the trailhead, we decided to uh, go down there and camp close by in Cougar, Washington. We were by the Lewis River, camped the night before so we could get up early and have a breakfast, not be hurried, and get to the trailhead is called Climber's Bivouac, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes from our campsite.
0: And we, that was a really cute campsite, wasn't it? it?
1: It was great. Yeah, we were right on the river and uh, had a pleasant evening. The campsite was not loud. There, it was pretty much full. It was. And there were families everywhere, mm-hmm. but uh, gosh, right at 10 p.m., quiet hours, it got quiet and we had a pretty peaceful night of sleep.
0: Pretty good. I was feeling nervous about uh, <laughs> what was ahead of us, but we got up the next morning and I think we got to the trailhead and parked and were on our way by about eight o'clock in the morning. So that was really great. Very easy.
1: Yeah. When you start this hike, the first two miles on the Tarmagen Trail is through forest, and there's not a lot of elevation gain. Uh, you don't even need a permit for this area. And it was pretty easy, and we're thinking, well, this, this
0: isn't too bad. It was a lovely stroll through a beautiful forest. It was very deceiving because, you know, you could skip along if you wanted yeah. to. You could sing a song.
1: <laughs> yeah. Were you singing a song? <laughs>
0: Uh, but then you you come to an intersection with the um, with the Lewitt trail, which is a perimeter trail that circles the entire mountain. It's a, a 32 mile very challenging trail. We so should you, do that someday. We should do that someday. Um, I did hear though that parts of the trail are washed out because of the eruption and so there is a lot of scrambling and route finding. And of course for 32 miles you, you obviously have to camp. Uh, you know, a couple of nights, but yeah, that might be fun to do as well. So, you either pick up the Lewitt or that's where the Monitor Ridge Trail starts, and there's a big sign there that you need a permit to go any further,
1: right? Um, that's when the pleasant stroll through the trees ended. <laughs> we came out of the trees, I don't think we saw another tree. No, the rest of the climb,
0: no, and the effects of the eruption 41 years later were still very visible. All of a sudden, it it turned to gray rocks, black rocks, ash. It looked very much like, like a barren landscape where an eruption had occurred.
1: The one thing we did do, we all brought some form of gloves, garden gloves. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you would do this hike without good gloves because there's a lot of boulder scrambling and I don't think I, my hands would have made it scrambling across those boulders without gloves.
0: No, because the rocks are dusted with this ash pumice that can shred your skin if you fall or if you scrape yourself against it. So not only did we have gloves, but we also wore long pants and long sleeves to sort of protect ourselves because you are literally... Crawling over these boulders for a long, long time. Right,
1: which seemed like forever. Yeah, we're, it was good that all four of us had gloves, and one of us—and I will not name the person—um, one of us had two left-handed gloves. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't me. And it
0: wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but
1: uh, that person uh, made it up just fine. It's, mm-hmm. Having a left-handed glove on your right hand is better than no glove at all. So uh, take gloves if you're going to hike this trail.
0: So this boulder field section, you're climbing 2,500 vertical feet. And you're going over boulders and sort of through these boulders. And it's very deceiving because you'll see this hill of boulders, this small boulder field in front of you. So then, you know, we climbed up, we squeezed through, and then all of a sudden in your sight line, you see another one, and but you can't see further than that. Yeah, and the
1: boulders go on forever.
0: Oh my gosh, they went on and on and on. But one
1: thing they they did or they maintain on this route is... They have, well, they look like fence posts, but they're much bigger, maybe four or five inches round and, and maybe 10 to 12 feet tall. And these posts are stuck into these boulders, which mark essentially the route through the boulders. And then once you get past the boulder field, which takes three or four days of, of climbing, <laughs> once you get out of that, then it's the trail's obvious from there. But yeah, you just, you just go from post to post and... Hope mm-hmm. that the boulders end sometime <laughs> soon.
0: That's right. But but once the boulders end and you're so thankful that they end and you can see the trail snaking up to the top of the rim, now all of a sudden you are in an ash field. So the last section climbs a 1,000 feet through this ash, which it seemed a lot like hiking through sand, didn't it?
1: It did. I was so glad to get out of the boulders and get to the ash that I thought, this is great. The, the rest of it, I, we don't have to worry about scrambling over those boulders. And, and about 100 feet later, I wish we were back in the boulders. <laughs> I know. Because that was, it, it's like a huge sand dune, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's not as fine as sand, but it's pretty close.
0: Yeah. it's You take two steps forward and one step back. And by this point... The four of us had spread out a little bit from each other because we were all going at slightly different paces and we all needed to rest at different times. So we could see each other. We were just spread out a little bit.
1: I would look back to make sure you were still alive. Yes.
0: I tell you what, the only way I got through this was I would pick out a boulder about maybe, I don't know, 50 yards in front of me and I would tell myself, Okay, Karen. All you have to do is get to that next boulder and you can rest and maybe you can sit down even and you can drink some water. That's all you have to do. Just get to the next boulder.
1: So you were you were talking to yourself. <laughs> did you During this conversation, did you ever think what what happened after you got to that boulder?
0: Like, no, I like, blocked it all out of my you, mind. That's the that's, only way I could because, get through it.
1: Tricking yourself. Which I is, yes, yeah, I, I completely I,
0: I, fooled myself. Uh, I think
1: when, when you talk to yourself, you should probably ask more follow up questions. <laughs> Probe a little bit more. It's like, well, like,
0: no, what exactly no.
1: happens, Karen, after I get to that
0: no, rock? See, because I
1: still have a thousand feet left to go.
0: That's the secret you <laughs> don't secret. want to know. Yeah. <laughs> it's best I, not to know. I will
1: tell you. This is the only hike I can remember where I was sitting on a boulder just resting and hikers came along and asked me if I was okay. I mean they were they were concerned. <laughs> they were
0: worried about you.
1: Yeah. And I so I said to them <laughs> <laughs> you, do you want to race do you want to race <laughs> and and then I passed out
0: I will say we um, met a lot of great people on the trail it's kind of like one for all and all for one everybody knows what everyone else is going through and there was this sense of of camaraderie yeah it was it was a really nice group this 110 people yeah. that were climbing up
1: everyone's trying to figure out <laughs> mm-hmm. who's not going to make it who, who do we have to carry down off the mountain one thing that happened totally unexpected, is when we got to that ash field, we weren't very far along and we saw the two biggest mountain goats I have ever seen. Uh, They were clearly males. Mm -hmm. And the one in the lead, you could see the muscles rippling through his (laughs) fur. I mean, it was so impressive. They were huge. Yeah. they They had this game trail that looked like it was circling the mountain And so you could see from a long distance, they were on their trail and it was perpendicular to ours. Mm -hmm. And so they were going to have to cross us at one point. They just hung out pretty close to our trail for a while and we got a really good view of them. And then when there was a gap, they bolted, they took off running. And that was impressive, just as hard as it was for us just to take step after step. They just bolted, they just took off running for like a half a mile. So that was cool.
0: Yeah, I don't think I have a single picture of that because I was so beaten down at that point and all I was trying to do was not die. So I yep. think I, I loved watching him. I don't think I took a single photo. I didn't have the energy. <laughs> I, t- I took
1: a photo in this little tiny gray dot in the distance, which is the impressive mountain goat. I don't know if you said this yet, but then it started getting real windy once Ugh. we got out of the boulder field and the wind just kept picking up. And I wear contact lenses, hard contact lenses And any little bit of dust or sand that gets underneath them is a huge problem. I had my sunglasses on, but God, that uh-huh. wind was just swirling.
0: And what you really need are some goggles because the sand would blow in on the sides of the sunglasses. They didn't—they right. didn't help that much.
1: Yeah, you need goggles or, mm-hmm. or recreation specs. They make those. Yeah, because contacts yeah. are not great uh, mm-hmm. on this particular hike.
0: So before we did this, um, we have a good friend Allison who who did this hike not too long ago, and she was telling us how when she got to the rim. She sat and had her lunch and was up there for maybe an hour or so, took a lot of photos. The views were incredible. So that's what I had pictured in my mind. Yeah,
1: we were going to have a picnic.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but when we finally struggled up that last few feet of the thousand foot ash field and we got up there, dang, it was so windy. You could hardly stand. Right.
1: And so you're not supposed to get close to the edge, which is a little bit of a trick because you don't know where the edge is because of the angle. So you're standing back, I don't know, maybe a good 10 feet from the, the true edge anyway. But as you get closer and closer, that wind was whipping up through the crater straight up. And when it would do that, it would bring all the ash with it. And so the pumice and the sand and went right into our faces, so we kind of just we just huddled there, tried to enjoy our moment, and just uh, never never got pleasant.
0: <laughs> we got up there. It was one o'clock in the afternoon, and like I said, we had left at eight, so it took us five hours to get up there. I bet we weren't on the rim five minutes, right. Yeah, but I will say um, that the views were, Incredible. Oh, they we were spectacular. Had, we had a beautiful clear day. And not only – so the views of the crater were amazing to see because it's now a horse – it's a horseshoe-shaped crater because the north side of the mountain is basically gone. Um, so that was amazing to look down and see this crater.
1: And we had also 360 views. We were into Oregon. Unfortunately, that year, it was the very beginning of a pretty bad forest fire season. So we could see some forest fires popping up in the distance that ended up days later turning into pretty bad forest fires. We had a spectacular day for it other Mm -hmm. than the wind.
0: Right. We could see Mount Adams. We could see Mount Rainier. Also, what was interesting was the section of rim that you can stand on is not very – I don't want to say wide, but, but long the other direction, you can't like walk along the rim very far because it drops off on both sides. So, so we're standing up there. How, how big of a section of rim would you say that was?
1: Yeah, it's a few hundred yards. Mm-hmm. You could go in either direction, but like you said, it's, it's broken off. And mm-hmm. so you can hike along the rim for a little while. And, and if there's more people there, you can kind of spread out and have lunch and, and not be on top of each other. Although that day, it was miserable for everyone. I yeah. mean, everyone was doing the same thing. They would mm-hmm. get to the top, stay for a couple of minutes, and start back down.
0: Yeah, but it was it was a moment to stand up there, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, and, it's, it's and, something
1: that we're really, really glad we did. Spectacular sights when we were up there and sense of accomplishment, doing something that difficult and completing it successfully.
0: Now, I had thought for some reason that the hike down would be a piece of cake. I don't know why I <laughs> thought that. <laughs> because climbing down those boulder fields was actually a little harder than going up. It wasn't. Um, it was easier to breathe. I wasn't huffing it and puffing as much going down, but it was still really difficult to scale all those boulder fields. Yeah,
1: and it's easier to fall down into the boulder fields as you as you're going down than than coming up. So, yeah, that was that was a challenge too. And by the time we got back down to the treed area, we were wiped out. Yes. And of course, you know, we thought, okay, so it's only a couple more miles and it'll be easy hike. That last mile on a difficult hike is always longer and harder than you expect.
0: So we got back to our truck and popped open our beers. We took a selfie. So I have the timestamp. It was 430. Uh, So basically it took us five hours to get up. And three and a half hours to get back down. So a total of eight and a half hours. And of course, there were a lot of stops, rest stops along the yeah, way yeah. where we had to stop and catch our breath. But but yeah, that was that was our hike.
1: <laughs> it was a, a very, very difficult hike mm-hmm. to do. I'm glad we did it. I'm not sure we need to do it again.
0: Yeah, that was the second part of Faith's question. Uh what was the most difficult hike and would you do it again? I, I think, you know, seeing the rim of the crater was was incredible, but I don't think I need to go and see it again. It's well, probably it's, not going to look any different.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things where you have to get a permit ahead of time. If I knew that it wouldn't be as windy as it was when we did it, I, I could probably get talked into doing it one more time, but that's hard to predict. Even ahead of time, you don't know it's going to be windy.
0: That's right. We did see people, as we were hiking up in the morning, we did see people coming down who had hiked up in the dark so that they could watch the sunrise. I guess that's a thing to do. We saw a
1: bunch of people Mm -hmm. coming down at 9 and 9.30 in the morning coming down off the mountain.
0: Yeah, I I mean, climbing those boulder fields in the dark would would add on another layer of difficulty, but I'm sure the sunrise was incredible. Uh, So let's talk briefly about if you would like to visit Mount St. Helens But you don't want to climb to the rim. There there are a couple different areas that you can visit. Now, as we talked about that Johnston Ridge Observatory Visitor Center, that is accessed from the west side. It's open from 10 to 6 every day from mid-May to the end of October. It has an observation deck with an amazing view of the crater. And in that same area that you access from the west, you have Coldwater Lake Recreation Area, you have some other hiking trails, and this road is snow-free from about mid-May through October.
1: Yeah, when we went, we came from the south because we were going to the climber's bivouac route, and it's snow-free from like mid-May to October.
0: And also right Almost next to where you park to access this, the the hike that we did, is the Ape Cave Lava Tube, which is a really fun thing to do, we heard. Unfortunately, when we were there in September, it was closed due to COVID. Um, but what it is, is it's a two-mile lava tube that formed 2,000 years ago. So you hike through it. It's pitch black. It's 42 degrees. Now, I did- And, he- and
1: why would you want to do that?
0: <laughs> Well, it's like a cave, Matt. Okay.
1: (laughs) I'll be on the outside.
0: I was really bummed that it was closed because I would love to do that. And I heard it's also really fun for kids. Now, the good news is they are reopening it this May, May of 2021. They are moving to a timed reservation system. So if you're interested in checking out the Ape Cave Lava Tube, uh, you can get your tickets on recreation.gov.
1: Were there there used to be apes <laughs> in the <laughs> state, state of on Washington? Is that why it's Ape Cave? they I knew, find okay, apes I, in there?
0: I knew you were going to say something about that. So I looked it up why it was named Ape Cave. And I read that the tube got its name from the Mount St. Helens apes, which were a group of foresters who who first explored the cave soon after its discovery in the early 1950s. So no apes, uh, but I suppose there might be bats. You like yeah, bats. Yeah, <laughs> again, I'll be
1: at the truck, I'll bring my cot, I'll take a nap. You just wake me up when you're done with the ape cave thing. But you know what was a little surprising to me the day after we did this climb? We visited the area from the east. So if you're coming from the east, you can drive to the Windy Ridge viewpoint, and and you overlook Spirit Lake, and, and you can see the, the blast zone. Matter of fact, this viewpoint is only five miles from the blast site. And, like, you don't have to climb. I'm, I, I We got there, and it was this beautiful sight. I thought, well, why did we climb this when you can just drive to this <laughs> viewpoint and see it from here?
0: You do it for the challenge, Matt, you know, to see what you're made of, test your I'll metal test and all a, that. Test my metal. <laughs> <Yes. Okay. laughs> But you're right. There were some incredible views there. So you drive this long and winding, beautiful road. Um, It's snow-free July through October. But there are viewpoints along the way where you can stop and look at uh, Spirit Lake and look at look at the crater. Pretty incredible. And at the end, at this Windy Ridge viewpoint, there's there's a set of stairs that take you up. Remember all those steps we went up up to again another viewpoint. And they have. information boards there i thought that was amazing
1: i did too i i like that better than the climb Mm -hmm. Uh, although it was kind of cool because we could see from that viewpoint we could see where we climbed to yes Uh, so that Mm -hmm. was that was pretty impressive
0: And what was also interesting was so, this Spirit Lake area, before the eruption, Spirit Lake was this much loved summer destination for swimming and camping and boating. It was surrounded by old growth forests with this incredible view of Mount St. Helens. But what happened, the blast and this debris avalanche came down onto Spirit Lake and it displaced the water out of the lake bed and it created an eight. 800-foot wave. Wow! I know. Can you imagine an 800-foot wave? No, I can't. And this slammed on the mountain slopes uh, along the north side. And then as this wave pulled back, it pulled back trees and, of course, plants and, and everything with it. So almost the entire lake at that point was filled with downed trees, with logs. And it created this floating log raft. And you can still see... See it today. Yeah,
1: that was pretty amazing. The, mm-hmm. the all the logs that are still in the lake. yeah, from that Windy Ridge viewpoint, you can really get a sense of of the destruction. So yeah, there's uh, so there's several ways that you can see Mount St. Helens as opposed to just climbing.
0: Right. Now, these three different areas that we talked about accessing it from the west, from the south, and from the east that is a lot of driving. Yes, yes, it is. This is is not, these are not necessarily close together. So, if you plan to do it in one day, take a good look at the mileage and your and whatever your time schedule is because I don't know if you can do all that in one day. It it is a lot of Mm -hmm.
1: forest service road Mm -hmm. driving, winding roads. It's beautiful, but uh, you don't want to be in a hurry. Because you're not going to get there in a hurry.
0: Right. Plan your day a lot to see and do.
1: So, Karen, do you think it'll ever erupt again?
0: You know, I would have guessed that the answer would be maybe it will, maybe it won't. Okay, but that's,
1: that's a <laughs> that really, would
0: have been my that's, answer. That's
1: a really good answer. <laughs> but. So how long have you been a volcanologist? <laughs> <laughs> and who did you pay for your volcanologist degree, degree. yeah
0: i got it in the mail uh, that's, that's what I, th- I
1: thought i saw something come in the mail the other day from the volcanologist uh, institute
0: that's right of American samoa. <laughs> <laughs> But what I was going to say is, when I looked it up, and I was I was actually looking at some official USGS websites, and the answer was yes, it will erupt again one day. Of course, no one knows when that will be, but but it was like a pretty definite yes.
1: I see. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: when you have a when you have a more precise date on that, let let me know.
0: All right. In the meantime. We have another volcano mountain that we're going to be talking about in our next episode, and that is one that's even closer to home, Mount Rainier.
1: It's another impressive one of these volcanoes in the Cascade Range.
0: It is. Now, for Mount Rainier National Park, there is a ton of recreation there. Lots of amazing hikes, lots of different areas of the park. So we will be talking about a lot more recreation in our next episode and all the amazing things to do and see in Mount Rainier. Yeah, that'll be fun. I know. And uh, back on the list one day, Matt? The Ape Cave.
1: Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Apes and caves at the same time.
0: What more? I cannot wait. What more could you want? <laughs> Thank you all for tuning into this episode and a shout out to our listeners in Thailand. It's so wonderful that people all over the world are interested in our national parks here in the United States. To find out more about the parks, check out our Dear Bob and Sue series of books. There are three of them available on Amazon.
1: We covered a lot of information about Mount St. Helens in this episode. And if you'd like to see some videos about the eruption, we'll post links to a few of those on our show notes. You can find our show notes at www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. Just click on the Episodes tab in the menu bar and then click on the title for Episode 40.
0: Our show is produced by our amazingly talented team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our cover artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. I wonder, Matt, if next year we'll have a new Most Difficult Hike to talk about.
1: Oh, I don't know about that. I'd like to request one with no boulder fields or ash or no 50-mile-an-hour winds.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's something that I can guarantee. That's
1: right.